And let me invite you, if you could, to open up your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 3. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a hardcover black one underneath the chair in the row in front of you. If you're using that Bible, you can find Proverbs chapter 3 on page 528. Now, as you hear the book of Proverbs and you think about that book, you likely know it as the book of wisdom. right? It was written by King Solomon, who we know is the most wise person to ever exist. We know him as the one who who asked God for wisdom, and God granted that prayer and gave him wisdom beyond what any of us have ever experienced. And the book of Proverbs is written by Solomon trying to pass that wisdom down to his son. What we're reading here in in these pages of Scripture is really a, a father sitting down with his son and saying, Son, I love you. If you want to live a life that honors God and goes well, listen up. Listen to these words. Listen to my instruction. That's what the book of Proverbs is. And and the truth is that all of us could stand to sit under that teaching from King Solomon. All of us could stand to, to grow in wisdom. I think there's not a single one of us who can approach every situation in life and say, yep, I, I know what to do here. There's not a single one of us who, who, who approaches hardship and says, I know the exact way to go. I, you know, I never face uncertainty or doubts or second-guess myself. Of course, none of us do that. We all have doubts about what we're supposed to do. We all have you know, times where we're trying to figure out what's next and second-guessing our own decisions. We all need wisdom. And chances are, if you're here this morning at a church like this, you would admit that you need to go to the Lord for that wisdom. You would likely readily say, yes, I know I need to go to God's word to gain the wisdom that I need to live my life. You might even say, okay, I I need God's word and I need to probably pray about these things every once in a while. We'd all admit that. And, And yet, our instinct is to go anywhere except to the Lord for help. Oftentimes, our instinct is to depend on anything else and to look anywhere else for the wisdom that we need. We might look to you know, a, a trusted friend and confide in them and, and ask for their wisdom about what we're supposed to do. It's not a bad thing to do. We ought to do that. Or we might look to a trusted leadership book and, and pull that book off the shelf and, and look where you know, some big business mogul and what he's done in, in times past and say, okay, I've got to do what that guy did. And, and we go to all these other tools to try to gain wisdom. And then maybe if things go just poor enough and just bad enough, then we'll say, okay, I guess I've got to go to God's word. I guess I I ought to pray about this and figure out what God wants me to do. Our our passage today is going to really challenge our natural instincts. It's going to really challenge that natural instinct to, to depend on your own instincts or your own reason or your own logic to get you out of a bind. Instead, this passage is going to encourage us and exhort us to, to trust in the Lord to depend on his wisdom and to trust in him instead of and in place of our own understanding about how the world works. So let me now read for us from Proverbs chapter 3. I'll be reading verses 5 through 8. Do you hear now the word of the Lord? You take heed how you listen. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. This is the word of the Lord. 
And it is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love for our good. Now, this is likely a a very familiar passage to many of you. If you've memorized some portion of the book of Proverbs, it's probably these verses, and that's worth doing. We ought to impress these on our minds, let them seep into our hearts. We, we, we would do well to, to memorize these verses. And yet we, we know them. We know that we ought to go to the Lord for wisdom, but the, the, the reality is we've got to be reminded of these truths time and time again. We need to be reminded to not trust in our own understanding, but to go to the Lord. We need that reminder daily, if not hourly, if not minute by minute, to trust in the Lord. And so, as familiar as this text might be, it's worth revisiting, it's worth considering anew what it means for you this day. So as we walk through this text, we're going to use just two headings this morning, fear the Lord and, or sorry, trust the Lord and fear the Lord. So if you look at the passage, that's really just the the main verbs from verse 5 and verse 7, to trust in the Lord and fear the Lord. So let's let's talk about trusting the Lord, looking at verse 5. Solomon writes, trust in the Lord with all your hearts and do not lean on your own understanding. I think this verse well summarizes the entirety of the book of Proverbs. That all the wisdom that Solomon is trying to pass on to his son can be boiled down to this. Trust in the Lord, not in your own understanding. Rather than trusting on your own instincts and your own wisdom, we are to lean on God alone, to lean on his wisdom, to trust in his ways and not our own. But let's think about what Solomon is really saying in this verse. When he uses the word trust, the idea behind that word is someone who's lying down with their face pressed into the ground. They're in the most defenseless position possible. You can picture when police officers are trying to arrest a dangerous subject, they might tell them to lay down on the ground like this, and then the officers will come and handcuff them from there. Because that position is defenseless. It leaves you helpless. And that's the thrust of this word, to trust in the Lord. Not necessarily that we need to you know, lay ourselves flat on the ground before we pray to the Lord, but rather that our hearts are to be fully surrendered to the Lord and to trust him fully. And then Solomon says we are to do this with all of our heart. Now for the ancient Hebrews, for Solomon writing this, when they use that phrase heart, they're speaking of the center of a person. The heart is is the core of your being. So to say that we should trust in the Lord with all our heart means that we are to trust God with the totality of our being. With every need, we are to trust God to supply it. With every tricky situation that we face, we are to trust God's wisdom to guide us through it. So that's why Solomon, with this command in the first part of the verse, contrasts it with the second part. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. And this is the problem that all of us have, where we trust in our own understanding. We assume that the way that we approach life, the way that we approach the world is flawless. That we know best how to deal with something. And maybe, yeah, we'll go to God with the big problems and and, and go to his word when we really, really need it. But the majority of the time, I think a lot of us are tempted to lean on our own understanding of how the world works. But I want to think for a moment about the truth behind this passage. You know, verse 5 is kind of presupposing two realities about how the world works. First, that our understanding is limited. And second, that God's understanding is limitless. 
we need to come to terms with the fact that our understanding is limited. We do not know what's going to happen in the future. And, you know, maybe some of you are great history buffs and you know a lot about the past, but you don't know everything about all of human history. Our understanding is limited. We cannot possibly gain an accurate picture of all that God is doing throughout the totality of human history. Our perspective is limited. I like to think of it like if you're a hiker, if you like going on hikes, probably not in Houston because there's not much of that around here, but maybe on vacation you go hike a mountain somewhere. When you get to the trailhead you can almost never see more than 10 or 15 feet down the trail. You know, at some point very soon as you start hiking, the trail's going to take a curve. It's going to go up a hill that you can't see over. There'll be big trees and obstacles in your way. And from the starting point of that hike, you don't know the total picture of what lies ahead. Even if you've got one of those great apps that kind of shows you a detailed view of the entire trail, even then, your understanding is still limited. And this is our perspective in this life. We have very limited knowledge of what's going to happen in the future, which is why we ought not to lean on our own understanding, because our understanding is so limited by our perspective. And then adding on top of that, our understanding of the world has been stained with sin. The way that we interpret world events, the way that you and I think about life and the challenges that we face Even the way we think about it has been affected by sin. It's been affected by the fall. Now, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1, he connects our our sinful state with our minds. Look at what he says here. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools." Even our mental capacities have been limited and affected by the fall of mankind. Our our knowledge of the world is stained by sin. So it makes sense why Solomon is warning his son, Son, I love you. Do not lean on your own understanding. We need to be abundantly careful when we hear these various philosophies in in, in the world that tend to lean on our own understanding. You know, Richard mentioned this just a few weeks ago, but I think it bears mentioning again. Uh, is, there's lots of these popular philosophies that go by phrases like, follow your heart, or just do whatever makes you happy. Or the, the more common one lately is live your truth, whatever that means. When you hear these popular philosophies, they're really just a modern version of trusting in your own understanding. Assuming that you know what's best. Assuming that you know what's right. And we need to flee from those kind of ways of thinking. We need to resist them. We need to take heed of what Solomon is warning us. That we need to not trust in our own understanding. Because it's been limited by our perspective and by sin. Okay, then we need to remember the the second presupposition of this passage. that, That while our understanding of the world is stained by sin... God's understanding of how the world works is perfect. It's without limits. Consider what the psalmist writes in Psalm 147. Great is the Lord and abundance in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Okay, so our understanding is limited. God's understanding is beyond measure. 
So that's why Solomon is, is reminding us to trust in the Lord and to not see things from our own perspective because the God of the universe is sovereign over all things. He, he sees all, he knows all, and he providentially guides all of human history towards his appointed ends. So think about what that means for a second. If that's true, that God really sees all things, knows all things, and is guiding all things, then that means you and I can really trust in his word. We really can trust what God has laid out for us in the pages of scripture. For instance, when God commands us to do something, we really can trust that his commands are given to us in love for our good. When, God, when God's law tells us to avoid some behavior, we really can trust that by God's design, that behavior will not end well for us. You know, when the sovereign Lord of the universe shows us the way we should go, we really can trust in him. We really can trust that his ways are better than our ways. Our understanding is limited. It's stained by sin. So why would we ever try to lean on our own understanding? Why would we ever try to do anything without the Lord's help? Why would we ever try to lean on our own abilities to get us through a given problem? Once again, this is why Solomon is telling his son not to lean on his own understanding, but instead to trust in the Lord. To trust in him wholly and entirely. Many of us saw a great picture of what it looks like to trust in the Lord entirely a few weeks ago on our all-church retreat to Mo Ranch. You remember one morning there's the catwalk that kind of bridges a big chasm at the camp, and you walk across this catwalk, there's guardrails. Well, they offered this activity where we were able to rappel off the catwalk. You know, you're in a harness, you're buckled and strapped in, and then you kind of step over the side of the railing, and there's a point where you just let go. And one rope is holding all of your weight as you slowly descend your way down to the floor 30 feet below. Your trust in that moment is entirely on that rope. Your entire life is in the hands of that one climbing rope. You know, that's a picture of trusting in the Lord entirely. Putting our whole weight, depending our entire existence upon Him. Trusting in Him to supply every need. Trusting that his ways really are better than our ways. There's a commentator named David Hubbard who writes this. Nothing less than with all your heart is sufficient. Choices, decisions, motives, and intentions must all be directed to what God wants and what God can do. Trust steps onto the bridge of God's loving power and leaves the shoreline of our own abilities and ambitions behind. Such belief literally means to bet your life on God's truth and wisdom. To bet your life on it. We ought to, we ought to pause and reflect and think about our own hearts. Think about this. If, if you're a follower of Christ, Ask yourself, do I really trust in the Lord with my whole heart? Do I really trust what God's word says? Do I really trust and believe that he's given us his word in love for our good? Do I really trust that God's ways are, are better than my ways?
Here again, the wisdom and this exhortation to trust in the Lord again in verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. and Do not lean on your own understanding. So attached to that exhortation is, is, this, is the following in verse 6, where, David, or where Solomon writes, In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. So when Solomon uses the phrase acknowledge, he's not merely meaning a, a nod of your head in the direction of God. Right? If you're walking in the office hallway tomorrow morning and you see a coworker, you might nod your head to acknowledge their existence and then you go about your ways. That's not what the Hebrew word acknowledge means. Rather, th- th- this is pointing us to a knowledge of knowing someone intimately. To acknowledge God in all of our ways means to know him deeply and to trust him entirely as our Savior. To trust in his lordship over your life. To trust that he really is your Savior. That he really did suffer and die on the cross on your behalf. That he really did rise again to new life. That he really is the Lord of your life. To trust in those facts is to acknowledge him. Acknowledge him in all of your ways, in every area of your life, to to acknowledge his wisdom and his understanding. So how do we do that? How do we actually acknowledge God in all of our ways? I would offer two, two steps. I think there's more than this, but at least two. One is to make, make use of the ordinary means of grace. We use that phrase often around this church, the ordinary means of grace, which is really just the, the ordinary ways that God has promised to give his grace to his people. God has promised to use his word to use the sacraments and to use prayer in the lives of believers. Those are the ordinary means of grace. And so if we want to acknowledge God in all of our ways, we should make use of the ordinary means of grace as much as we can. So that means to make it a priority to to be here Lord's Day after Lord's Day, to hear the word read and preached, to study the Bible on your own, to study the Bible in small groups and and city groups and in Bible studies throughout the week to get as much of the word in your life as possible. This means to, to you know make regular reminder of the sacraments as we, you know, in a little while we'll take the Lord's Supper together to realize the nourishment that's given to you there to grow your faith and your trust in God. And to make regular use of prayer both corporate prayer together on Sunday mornings and your own individual prayer throughout the week to make regular use of these ordinary means of grace are one of the ways we can acknowledge him in everything. I think second is to seek wise counsel continually. You know, by God's grace, this church is beautifully diverse in the backgrounds of our members. We have people from all over the world, from all different walks of life that worship together on the Lord's Day, which means if you are going through a problem and you're not sure what to do, by God's grace, there's probably another person here who's walked those steps before you. Seek wise counsel from them. Seek out those people who are older and wiser than you that have wisdom to to share with you and to teach you and, and be willing to seek them out and ask them for help. Ask them for their wisdom. So we get to this phrase at the end of this verse 6. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Now we need to remember the, the genre of this book for a moment. 
Remember that, that Solomon is not writing direct promises, you know, one-to-one correlation, if you do this, then absolutely this will happen. Rather, he's writing God-inspired wisdom about how God has designed the world to work. So really, th- this proverb is saying, if you know the Lord and submit to him, your time on earth will work better. When you submit to God's revealed will, your path will be straighter. Or as a few other translations put it, our paths will be smoother. And we know this is true, that that because God is the creator and the designer of the world, things go better when you submit to his ways. If you have a new car, that car came with an instruction manual. Things go better when you follow the maintenance that's been prescribed there. Things go better when we submit to God's word and the way he says the world should work and the way we should live in it. Now, you often hear a phrase from this pulpit that that sin never takes you where you want to go, and sin always makes things worse. And that's true. That is true that sin never takes you where you want to go. Rebellion against God's word never takes you where you want to go, and sin never makes things better. And that means that obedience to God's word will never make things worse. Obedience to God's word will lead to straighter paths. Not that life will always go easy, right? Not that our lives will be smooth and not have any more problems or issues. We know that's not the case. In fact, obedience to God's word will often require great sacrifice for believers. In a world that's becoming more and more rebellious to God's revealed will, we will certainly have times that obedience will take real effort. There may be times when obedience to God's word will cost your acceptance into a desired friend group. There may be times when obedience to God's word will cost you a promotion at work. Young people, there there may be times where obedience to God results in you getting a lower test score as you refuse to cheat off your neighbor. Obedience to God's word requires real sacrifice, but that sacrifice will always be worth it. It will. We know from Romans 8 that God will work together all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He will do this, and he's promised to do this, and he's faithful to do it. Just think for a moment of the Israelites wandering the deserts after they've been freed from slavery in Egypt. They get across the Red Sea, and as they're in the wilderness, they're being guided by the Lord. Right? The Lord in his abundant kindness provided uh, a pillar of fire and smoke to lead them towards the promised land. But if you read the book of Exodus, you know that that path is not straight. It's not a straight shot from Egypt to the promised land. The Lord in his kindness and in his sovereignty has them wander around the wilderness for 40 years. Yet all along, God was guiding them. The path seemed winding and bumpy and anything but straight and smooth. But God was faithful to his promise to bring the Israelites into the promised land. God's always faithful to guide his people. He is. Even when the path doesn't seem straight. Even when it seems as though life is bumpy and hard and winding. That's from our perspective. From God's perspective, he is leading us straight towards where he's promised to take us. 
And so just as Solomon is encouraging his son, hear this encouragement again today. Trust in him. Trust in him and trust in his word with your whole heart. Let's move on to our second heading, fear the Lord. Let me read verse 7. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. You know, in some ways, we've already talked about what it means to, to not be wise in our own eyes, right? That's very, uh, very similar to what he writes in verse 6, to not lean on your own understanding. But here, there's, there's a certain amount of pride added into this statement. To be wise in your own eyes is to pridefully boast that you have wisdom. It's a, it's a specific type of pride that says, I have enough wisdom, I don't need God's help for this, I'm fine on my own. You know, what greater illustration is there of this type of pride than the fall in Genesis chapter 3? Right? Th- think about Adam and Eve in the garden. God had explicitly told them what to do. God had explicitly told them, if you want to be wise in this situation, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of evil, good and evil. Don't do it. And yet, as Genesis 3 verse 6 records for us, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Do you see what Adam and Eve were trying to do in the garden? They, they thought that eating this fruit would make them wise, would make them wiser than God. Lord had been abundantly clear, this is what you are to do. And they still chose to be wise in their own eyes. They still chose to eat of the fruit. I think it's, it's, it really is, it, it's foolishness to think that our ways are better than God's. It really is to, 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 to assume that we know better than God's law. Or to assume that, you know, I know what God's word says, but I really want to do my own thing, and and maybe this sin will will make things better. It won't. It won't. And so so we hear this this command again, be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. So if we know we're not supposed to be wise in our own eyes, the antidote then is to fear the Lord. To fear the Lord. Now, this phrase might be hard to define. You know, we speak of fear in our modern context and we think of scary movies or we think of fears we might have about the future. But when the Bible speaks of fearing the Lord, there's a different idea in play. It's not scary. It's a sense of awe and wonder and amazement and submission of who God is. Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner says it this way, to fear the Lord is to have a worshiping submission to the God of the covenant. Let me say that again. To fear the Lord is to have a worshiping submission to the God of the covenant. So that means to submit to him as Yahweh. Right? If you look back at verse 7, you'll notice that the word Lord there, you know, fear the Lord, that's in all caps. That's telling us that in the Hebrew, that's the original covenant name from God. That's Yahweh. So to fear the Lord is to submit and worship the Lord as the God who's made a covenant with us. He's the God who's promised time and time again all over Scripture that he would be our God and we would be his people. 
that we belong to him and we are made to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. So this phrase, to fear the Lord, becomes an all-encompassing way of calling us to worship and submit to God in all things. And here's the amazing thing, that, that, that when we fear the Lord, when we submit to him in all things, we begin to resist the idea of being wise in our own eyes. As we grow in our fear of the Lord, it helps us grow in our awareness of our own foolishness, our own desire to be wise in our own eyes. Look at how Sinclair Ferguson puts this. A proper fear of God is that indefinable mixture of reverence and pleasure, of joy and awe, which fills our hearts when we realize who God is and what he has done for us. A proper fear of God is a love for God which is so great that we should be ashamed to do anything which would displease or grieve him. It makes us happiest when we are doing what pleases him. I love the way that he describes it in that quote. As we grow in our fear of the Lord, in our love for him, we will grow in obedience to his word and hate the sin that remains in us. As we actually grow you know, in fearing the Lord, it's going to grow in us an aversion to evil. It's going to grow in us a desire to turn from evil. Again, as Solomon says in, in verse 7, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. So Richard mentioned this last week, but I think it's mentioning again that, that as we grow in knowing the Lord, as we grow in, in fearing him and submitting to him in all things, there, there's two things happening at the same time. We are growing in our awareness of God's holiness of his perfection, of his perfect righteousness. And at the same time, we become just increasingly aware of the sin that remains in our hearts. Not that we become more sinful as we grow, but we become more aware of the sin that remains in our hearts. As we grow to fear the Lord, we'll notice the sin that, that wages war and we'll want to, we'll grow in a desire to do something about it. This is why Solomon connects the fear of the Lord with turning away from evil, with repenting of sins, turning our backs to sin, and turning back to God. As we grow in fearing the Lord, we grow an aversion to the evil that's in our hearts. Now, as I grew into adulthood, my body has grown an aversion to eggs. If I eat eggs in any form, you know, baked into something or scrambled any form, my body will, will, will not react well. My throat will start to itch and swell. My stomach won't feel well. My body has grown an aversion to eggs. There's a similar picture of what it means to grow an aversion to evil. To grow, to, to turn away from evil as we long and, and endeavor after fearing the Lord. Now we should readily admit that sin remains in all of our hearts. There's no Christian that's perfectly sinless in this life. We know that, that through Christ's death on the cross, he has defeated sin's power in our hearts, but sin's presence still remains. For the Christian, we've been freed from sin's power, yet we are not yet freed from sin's presence. You can think of what Paul writes in Romans 6, for sin will have no dominion over you since you were under law, not under law, but under grace. So for the Christian, because of Christ's work on the cross and his dying for sin, we know that sin no longer has power over us. 
As believers, we can actually turn from sin and endeavor after new obedience towards Christ. Sin's power no longer has a hold on our hearts. And yet, sin's presence remains. And while it remains, we really can continue to say no to it. We really can say no to the sin that remains in our hearts. We really can grow in holiness. And we do this through fearing the Lord. Fearing Him and turning from evil. I love what John Calvin says about this, that nothing is more powerful to to overcome temptation than the fear of God. Dear Christian, if you've grown weary in your fight with sin, if you've become discouraged and exhausted over some sin that remains in your life, you have no more powerful tool than to continue to fear God. If you've been worn out wondering if you'll ever grow in your battle against anger, against lust, against jealousy, or against any other sin, if you're feeling worn out and empty, I urge you to continue to fear the Lord. Continue to fear Him, to grow in loving Him and submitting to His will. To continue repenting of your sins and turning from them and turning back to God. To continue to to, to make use of the means of grace. To sit under faithful preaching Lord's Day after Lord's Day. To continue to to go to the Lord in prayer. To continue receiving the sustaining grace that's made available to us through this table that we'll get to partake of in just a few minutes. I urge you, don't, don't give up the fight. Keep pressing on. Keep growing in your fear and love of the Lord. He will strengthen you. He will nourish you again to continue fighting that sin in your hearts. I promise you, the battle's worth it. This fight against sin that remains is worth the fight. And when you're feeling worn out and wondering if you'll you'll ever see growth, we ought to look at this reminder of what comes next in verse 8 of our passage. Look at the reward that's coming. Solomon writes, It will be healing to your flesh and nourishment to your bones. It being this, this fight against sin, this turning away from evil and, and growing in our fear for the Lord will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Now, this is not, you should know, this is not physical healing, right? Just repenting of sins doesn't cure your broken arm, right? This is a turn of phrase, much like what we would use this day. If we were to wrong somebody else and then we come and confess it to them, we might say afterwards, we'd say, hey, you know, that that felt so good to get that off my chest. Or I feel like a weight has just been lifted from my shoulders after I confess that sin to you. That's what's happening here. As we turn from sin, as we confess it and trust in the Lord, it will be healing and refreshment for our souls. Pastor Ray Ortland Jr. says that fearing the Lord and turning away from evil, calling sin, sin, and turning from it is healing and refreshment. Dear Christian, as you say no to sin and say yes to the Lord and His ways, as you grow in obedience to Him, it will be healing and refreshment for your soul in this life. After all, I think that the opposite of that is true. If we fail to to deal with the sin that remains in our hearts, 
if we fail to confess it and repent of it, it will be damaging to our souls. This is the idea that David writes about in Psalm 32. He says, For when I kept silent, that is, when I failed to confess my sin, when I failed to deal with it properly, when I, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your, heavy, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. When he failed to confess and fight the sin that remained, he describes the feeling as if his bones and flesh were wasting away. But then, after he repents, after he confesses his sin to the Lord, look at what he writes in verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. If David had continued to hide his sin from the Lord, to fail to confess it and deal with it, he would have continued wasting away. But instead, he confessed it. He turned from it, repented from it, and turned back to the Lord, and God forgave him. God healed him. And that's what Solomon is getting at in verse 8 of our passage. That when we fear the Lord and turn away from evil, it will be refreshing and healing in this life. Now, I think there's a sense of this verse applying today. Applying to us as believers presently in this life. That he really does refresh us and renew us as we continue our battle against sin. But I think part of this verse has a, has a future fulfillment aspect to it as well. You have both the already in this life that God will, will nourish us in our fight against sin, and you have the not yet, this promise of the future that's coming for all who are in Christ by faith. That one day we will experience full healing and restoration of our sinful flesh. One day, by sins, uh, both sin's power and sin's presence will be entirely gone. Right? We confessed this earlier in the Nicene Creed that one day Christ will return again. And when he does, he's going to bring all of his people all the way home. We will be in the new heavens and the new earth together with him forever. And on that day, sin's presence will be wiped away from your life. On that day in the new heavens and the new earth, all those temptations that have waged war in your heart will be gone. By God's grace, they will be gone forever. Your battle with lust will be won. Your battle over the anger in your heart will be eradicated. Or whatever sinful temptation is drawing you today, it will be gone forever. We will be refreshed. We will be restored. We will be renewed one day and we will be made perfectly righteous in God's eyes. On that day, we will find full healing and refreshment for our souls. Or as the Shorter Catechism puts it, we will be made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. That day is coming. Christ has promised to do this and he is sure to do it. He will. And in the meantime, we, as we wait here on earth, we wait patiently. We continue to grow in fearing the Lord. We endeavor after new obedience towards Him and we continue to trust in the Lord's understanding. We trust that His ways are better than ours. We trust that obedience to His Word is what's best for us today. 
in just a few moments, we're going to come to this Lord's table together. We're going to take communion. And, and even this table, even this meal, is pointing us to the already not yet aspect of Proverbs 3. This meal, in, in part, is both nourishment and a reminder. It's nourishment for you this day where the Holy Spirit works through this meal to nourish you, to give you strength to continue following and aiming to grow in your fear of the Lord. This is nourishment to continue to fight that sin that remains in your hearts. There is real grace given through this meal. But this meal also reminds us of what's to come, of what God has promised to do in that last day. When we, along with all the saints throughout history, will get to join together at the wedding feast of the Lamb. And we will get you know, to enjoy this meal together with God as our covenant God. We will be His people and He will be His God. And we'll get to enjoy this together with all the saints from eternity. What a gloriously beautiful day that will be. We'll get to experience full healing from our sinful flesh. We'll be healed. We'll be forgiven we made new. We'll get to enjoy eternity with God as our God with all of his people forever. We look for that day. We long for that day. And until that day comes, we, we aim for obedience. We take nourishment through the ordinary means of grace when it's given to us. And we trust that God will strengthen us. We trust that his way is better than ours. Let me invite you to take just a few moments to silently reflect on all of this and prepare your hearts before we come to the Lord's table. Would you do that now?